it seems. I've lost my religion. I put no stock in religion. By the word religion, I've seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God. I've seen too much religion in the eyes of too many murderers. Holiness is in right action and courage on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. It's the best forgotten movie! Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time forgot. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Christian Crusader, Andrew Phillips. Praise be to L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and today we're clashing swords with Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. But is this often overlooked religious epic worth fighting for? Or is Dante's Inferno too good a place for this overlong bore? Find out after the trailer. Be without fear in the face of your enemies. Safeguard the helpless, even if it leads to your death. That is your oath. Rise a knight! Rise a knight! What becomes of us? The world will decide. The world always decides. A new world. A better world than has ever been seen. There, you are not what you were born, but what you have it in yourself to be. A kingdom of conscience. Peace instead of war. Love instead of hate. That is what lies at the end of Crusade. The carved wooden statue of Orlando Bloom plays Balian of Ebelin, a mere blacksmith facing a crisis after the death of his pregnant wife. Sad face. Fixed expression. When his absentee father returns to his life, Balian begins a crusade to find answers to his existential crisis. During his journey to find God, 
Balian makes friends in the most unlikely of places and enemies and powerful people. He strikes new forbidden loves before ultimately finding himself defender of Jerusalem and its people. Or if you've seen the theatrical cut, Kingdom of Heaven is about a man who quickly learns to hit people to death with swords a lot. (laughs) Before we begin, I think we have to clarify which cut or cuts of the film we are going to be in fact covering on this podcast. Now, I think this is going to be a back and forth between the two. We're going to be covering both the director's cut and the theatrical cut in great detail. Yeah, we're going to subtitle this episode both cuts. Yes, because both cuts are radically different, but I will put out a footnote here, which is that if you have not seen the director's cut and you are listening to this episode and you think it's a film that you perhaps would like to see, I would definitely watch that film before listening to this podcast. It's definitely not worth us spoiling. And if you've only seen the theatrical cut, then go see it. Yeah, I cannot tell you just how different this film is is in terms of both content and quality. Yeah, definitely. So why are we covering Kingdom of Heaven on Best Forgotten Movies? I mean, why have we nominated it? I think this is one that has come with a degree of fan demand, specifically Mm, from one very vocal uh, listener of the podcast, which is Stuart Crichton or Crichton. But why are people asking us to cover Kingdom of Heaven? Can you, in fact, you know, open that up for us, Andy? I think it's a film that has been embraced following the release of the director's cut. Yeah. But still, I don't feel that enough people know about the director's cut versus the theatrical because the film came out and the theatrical cut was so underwhelming yeah. and it did so little business. It immediately got forgotten then. When they re-released the director's cut, a small group of people hailed it as being a masterpiece from yeah. then on. And it does have a status of being a kind of a good film now, but I don't feel enough people have actually watched that director's cut. So it's still sort of fallen by the wayside, even though it's got a small cult following. It's almost like a cult epic now. It, it is, yeah. And it's crazy to think about considering just how big this film yeah. is. Yeah. And I agree. I think this is vastly overlooked, vastly underappreciated, most certainly the mm. director's cut that is. And even when we do get releases, like for instance, over here, we just got a release with all versions on it not too long ago. Yeah. It was released with very little fanfare. And it's now out of print, which and is it's why I can't buy it. Completely out of print. This is why I'm borrowing yours. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just a disservice considering what has been achieved with this film, in my opinion. I mean, people like to think of Blade Runner to reference a previous Ridley Scott film. People like to think of Blade Runner as being a huge difference in quality between theatrical cut and director's cut. I'd say this even overtakes that by quite a large margin. Yeah, this is almost like a different film. Yeah. So, Andy, before we continue, what experience, if any, have you had previously before this episode with Kingdom of Hell? With With Kingdom Kingdom of of Hell. (laughs) That's the sequel. Yeah. (laughs) Kingdom of Hull. Not loads. It's more based on what you said. And I'm pretty sure I watched segments of it and also the documentary many, many years ago. Yeah. And the director's cut had been out so fairly recently. And I bought the director's cut, but then didn't watch it in full until actually doing this podcast. So in theory, I've never actually seen it in its full length yeah. until recently. And I don't know why that is. It's just that I think I've never got around to it because it's a large section of time that you need to set aside for this film. Yeah, it's one of those films, much like Lawrence of Arabia yeah. and the like. It's a film that you have to put a day aside for. Yeah, you, you need to put it in your diary. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a recent father and as people know who have kids, it's a lot of effort to actually keep a baby alive. <laughs> 
So I really struggled to find time for this film and my hectic life at the moment, but I did. It required me staying up till four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> but I found that time. Yeah. And it was worth it. It was worth all of it. I went to see this film in the cinema while I was at college and it left no impression on me whatsoever. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think I remember speaking to somebody about it and said it was a very pretty looking film, but completely unremarkable otherwise. Yeah. And you could tell even watching that theatrical cut that it was something better underneath because it's very rare that you watch a film like this and you see how well made and put together it is just in terms of the images that you're being shown and thinking, yeah. wow, how can they have paid so much detail to the visuals, but no detail at all to the script? And you really got the feeling that there was something better there. And yeah. every now and again, it flirted with greatness, but never quite achieved it. Mm. And when they announced that a director's cut was coming out, I was not surprised. And I picked it up straight away, being a fan of Ridley Scott. And it was like watching a different film completely. Mm. It went from being a film which I thought was average to being a legitimate masterpiece yeah. and a complete masterwork <laughs> from Ridley Scott in my eyes. Yeah, I don't think yeah. there is a film that has benefited from a director's cut as much as this film has. No, no. The theatrical is so average. It's, yeah. it's bizarre how significant parts of Nipping and Tucking have severely gutted and hampered the film to yeah. such an extent that it looks like a much worse film has been made on first impressions if you watch that theatrical cut. Fortunately, I watched the director's cut and then watched the theatrical cut well, I watched half the theatrical this morning because after a certain point, I stopped caring. Yeah. So I couldn't even get through the theatrical cut anyways, which is crazy considering how engrossed I was in the director's cut. Well, I have, like I say, I've seen a theatrical cut and I did try watching it again for this episode. And once, much like you, I got to about halfway through and mm. simply gave up because it just wasn't worth pursuing any further. I remembered what was cut from the rest of the film, and I thought this really wasn't worth it. Yeah, I got to about Kerak, and then I just thought, yeah. I've seen it anyway, but I'm just like, the way that this has been put together is just not doing it for me. Yeah, it's like so. a heartless version of the yeah. film, and we will get into that yes. very shortly. But first, as many of our listeners know, here on Best Forgotten Movies, we like to really delve into the history of these films before we start to discuss what either of us liked about them. So, yeah. where do we begin with the history of Kingdom of Heaven? I think we have to start with a failed film. Yes, which was Tripoli. The, yeah, Tripoli. The William Monaghan written screenplay, which you informed me that he actually owns the rights to that. Yeah, now. it's a spec script. And as part of the deal of them not making it, yeah. he got to keep the rights to his screenplay, which is only the proper thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, we may or may not see a version of it in the future. Although, I think time has passed quite significantly since it was written so yeah i don't know whether it's ever going to be made or it could be one of those like like stanley kubrick's napoleon where it's only kind of getting made now yeah they're actually i can't remember who's involved in trying to get it made but oh, there is no. actually a effort being made to realize stanley yeah. kubrick's vision of napoleon as a tv series yeah yeah as it should be now because i think if you tried to make that now and then, yeah well, we end up with a situation like this i think it's following <laughs> the success of war and peace which yeah was a yeah. bbc slash harvey weinstein I think. Yeah. And that came out to great success, and now they've jumped on Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tripoli, then, where do mm. we begin? I mean, it's. I was actually amazed watching a documentary about how long in production they were, how close to filming they were. Yeah, they were, they when were, it was they were building sets, down. weren't they? Yeah. yeah. And it seemed like one of Ridley Scott's many great unmade films. Mm. The yeah. other one, always, that jumps to my mind is I Am Legend, starring yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> which would have had crazy practical effects if anybody's seen the adi clip on their youtube page yeah it looks fantastic 
much better than the film that we actually ended up with. I think it would have been more along the same lines as Total Recall. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of unmade... I think it's because his work turned over so quickly these days that a lot of great ideas just get tossed over by the wayside because there's another idea that can probably get made easier. Yeah, uh, yep, sooner. Because time's a ticking. It is, it is. So he's not, he's not getting younger. Forever, no. No. Oh, don't say it's that. sad, isn't it? But um, yeah, he's making up for it now. Like His workload has doubled. Yeah. So, yeah, since the year 2000, I think he's just... If you think how many films he made in the 90s and the 80s versus how many he made in the 2000s and in this decade, it's just uh, astounding. Literally almost like a film a year. Yeah, it is. Big films as well. Yeah, they are. And I do think quality has taken a hit over it. But then again, he's just coming off the back of The Martian, which has been one of his most successful films in quite a while. And I very much enjoyed that. And then again, it's this quality thing that we'll go into later where I feel like his main problem at this stage in life, and probably always been the case because, again, we got it with Blade Runner back in the day, Mm -hmm. where he He's taken so much ownership of the film throughout the development and the pre-production and the production of the film. But when it gets to the post-production, it almost as if he hands it over to the studio a bit too early. Yeah, I think it's almost like his eyes begin straying to the next project rather than staying firmly rooted in the project that he's working on. It's not even as if his films are lower in quality at times. It's as if just those edits of those films are lower in quality. Yeah. I mean, they do go up and down anyway. But I mean, even a film like The Counselor, which is derided. Did. Mm-hmm. Even when I saw that film for the first time theatrically, I didn't like it that much. Yeah. And then we watched it again with the extended version of it, and uh, there's just a couple of little changes that made the film so much better. Yeah, I would say it's still a divisive film, yeah. and it still has really strong and really weak elements to yeah. it. But I've seen both cuts, and the director's cut is far better. Yeah. So I feel there's a lot of that in it where that's really the problem where we've got to get it down to two hours, 20 minutes, no matter what. So... Yeah, it's it's a bit of a shame, really. And I kind of feel like he has this director's cut thing where that's his version of the film. But I feel in releasing the lesser version as a theatrical cut, he's already done the damage. Yeah, well, that's the thing with Ridley Scott. I always think is that his final result is always that director's cut. That's what he's got his eyes on. So it's almost like the theatrical release uh, many times in his career is just a stop in the journey of achieving that director's cut. It's a byproduct of the system. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. So it's like almost he says, oh, well, the studio can do whatever they want with it. They've put all this money into it. He likes to have that strong working relationship with his studio. And it's almost like as long as they let me do my thing later on. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's all the vast majority of the population get to see. I mean, yeah. it's only people like us who come and pick up the director's cut. Definitely. So it makes Ridley Scott in the public's eye lesser and lesser of a figure. Yeah. Like his films are increasingly looking more and more dodgy mm-hmm. when that's not really the case. It's just the fact that they've been hampered at the editing stage. Yeah. And you know that, that happened with Prometheus. That was a classic example where that's a film that was severely... I mean, there, there are problems with it anyway, even at a writing stage, which they should have definitely sorted out because there's loads of character problems with yeah. that and also the way they tell the story. But there's things editing-wise, like even if you look at the deleted scenes and I actually put together my own cut yeah you did of Prometheus it was much stronger yeah and it's not even a lot of stuff it's just that it's subtle things and also there's things where they changed around like just for example where there's scenes in Prometheus where characters get killed mm-hmm. and then they magically appear alive again just because they needed an action beat at that part in the yeah. film rather than where it actually should have been in the script later on so it creates its own problems and unfortunately that film's now very much derided amongst fans and we've never got an extended or director's cut of that film to sort of right the wrongs very much like this Kingdom of Heaven does. Yeah. And it's now up to Alien Covenant to sort of steady the ship ship again when that doesn't 
need to be the case because there is a strong film in Prometheus. It's just been hampered severely by the editing of the film. Yeah, it's a film that I would refer to as most certainly structurally flawed. Yeah, very much so. There are elements of it I very much enjoyed, but the editing certainly is not one of them. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the editor that he uses. I mean, I like the editor for this film yeah. of Heaven a lot because she puts up a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the name of the editor? Is it Dodie? Dodie Dawn. Dodie Dawn. Dodie yeah. Dawn. If you look in the documentary, she really put up a fight for the director's cut of the film to be the actual cut. Yeah, of and... all the people actually speaking of the theatrical cut, she was the one that seemed the most emotionally charged of the whole yeah. group when referring to it. Yeah, it's almost like she only created the theatrical cut begrudgingly. Yeah. Like because she was pushed yeah. into doing Her it. Her hand was forced. Yeah. Whereas on the other side, if you watch, say, the Prometheus documentary, it just feels like they had a good cut there somewhere and then they were pushed into making it shorter. And the editor of that film, was it Pietro Scarlio? Scarlio, yeah. He just went, yeah, we'll we'll do this. It's fine. It yeah. makes it shorter. And it's like, you don't want those kind of people. No, you need somebody to fight the corner. Film. Yeah. It's a really frustrating experience, especially when you think how much work people have put into it. And then you, you're butchering your baby before it's been born. Yeah, certainly. So to move back to Tripoli as a failed production, I think one of the things that we were saying was it was so far along in production, which was made it such a surprise that it was actually, well, shut down completely because on the documentary, Ridley Scott actually speaks about them actually getting three green lights and they had already cast Russell Crowe in the lead role. Yeah, and they were building sets. Yeah, building sets. And so it was when this film was shut down for, I guess, the third time, yeah. if it had received three green lights up until then, that he actually turned to William Monaghan and asked him if he had really anything in his back pocket something that he could do because he was desperate to make a film he was raring to go he was a man without a film to make Mm. and one of the things he actually mentioned to william monaghan as a potential idea to pursue was the crusades it was something that he'd always wanted to do but never actually got around to exploring yeah as fortune would have it uh, william monaghan says that this is the film that he had been waiting his whole life to write yeah he he was Mm. a huge crusades fanatic and not in the stabby stabby die in the name of god kind of fanatic (laughs) (laughs) he was a real like fan of the crusades he was well researched and he already had an idea of what he wanted to explore and so began a budding relationship that would last precisely one film (laughs) well scott seems to do that doesn't he yeah jumps from one writer to another and yeah, I mean, Monaghan's only ever done one other major script since then. He's had a lot of other films fall by the wayside, yeah. actual projects that are not particularly great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems he is like an Oscar winning yeah. writer for The Departed. Yeah. But since then, he no. hasn't really done anything worth note. And I think his move into directing has been something of a mistake mm. because he is truly a talent. And it's a shame that he is being wasted on. I would say less than stellar directorial efforts. Yeah, his writing is where his real talent lies. Yeah. I think it's always that thing, though, when you're in the system, it's always the temptation to get the director's post because that's where you've got the most power. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, a writer's a bit of a... Unless you're with someone like Ridley Scott, you're a bit more of a lackey. Yeah. So I think we actually we lose quite a lot of talented writers to those ambitions, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But one of the things that actually inspired William Monaghan to write Kingdom of Heaven was not the story of Balian, of Ebelin. It was, in fact, Baldwin the Leper King, yeah. which really kind of like sparked his interest. That was the film that he had always wanted to make. Mm. And he said that the image of Baldwin the Leper King wearing his silver face mask mm. had haunted him since he was a 15-year-old. Yeah. And uh, Balian is actually a very minor character in that story, really, because they had very 
little in, t- in regards of information about that character, about mm. that person in real life. All they know is that it was a person called Balian who actually gave up Jerusalem. Yeah. So much of this film is, in fact, what you refer to as historical fiction. Yeah. Which is by no means a problem whatsoever. No, I feel actually some films work better for that. I mean, even when you're in like novel form and stuff, there are a hell of a lot of good books out there that are based on historical fact, but are in of themselves fictitious. Yeah. That are celebrated. So I don't feel it's so much of a problem in a literal sense. It, I think it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter. I mean, if you want to know the exact truth, then go and watch a documentary. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Read the history books. That's what they're there for. Yeah, because that's not really what this film's interested in. It's more about the idea of the Crusades. Yeah. And then what it has to say about today. Yeah, yeah. It's all about how this journey that the character's on relates to the current situation that, well, we were in then and are still in and mm. amongst today. So this film is still very relevant today. And I actually think by making it a story that's more relevant today, that draws more parallels with modern politics and yeah. modern ideas of religion and what it means. I think that was a wise choice. I always prefer it when a film draws on fact to tell us a story that applies to the modern world. And it doesn't have to be historically accurate. And this film has actually received some criticism for not being perfectly historically accurate. And that's not a problem in my eyes. It no. really isn't. That th- This is a film at the end of the day. Yeah. When you're making a film, obviously you want it to be reasonably accurate to the period, but obviously they wanted a romanticized version of that. I mean, it's not overly romanticized. It's more about how you would think about it in your mind. Yeah. But it was said that they were actually drawing on romantic paintings from, well, 100 years past. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of just how romanticized this really is. But it still feels grounded. It still feels brutal. It's sweeping and grand, but it does have a foot on the ground. But it still feels like the period. It's no Guy Ritchie King Arthur film. (laughs) No. (laughs) Which we saw in the trailer. No. Which looks shocking, considering that it's meant to set up some sort of universe. I honestly don't get that film. I don't get the universe in which it is set and i can't believe that they've made a king arthur for bros it's excalibur two smoking barrels (laughs) it's strange because on paper that sounds like a film that i would be interested in seeing but actually in execution it looks just like dog shit yeah (laughs) it's just not good yeah so i feel like people were poking holes at it in its theatrical form because the theatrical version is very slight and unemotionally engaging Basically, the heart of the film has been gutted out of that version. I think it draws attention to other things mm-hmm. that may not necessarily be right in the film. So yeah. I think people will be criticizing it based on the fact that the film doesn't draw you in Yeah, in its initial version. So I feel like a lot of the criticism probably would have come from that period of time rather yeah. than when the director's cut came out. Well, I think when a film is so unemotionally engaging, it gives you that distance to sit back and say, oh, well, that didn't happen. This didn't Mm, happen because you're not locked into the film. And that gives you a position to really poke holes and pick flaws and look at plot holes and things like that. When really the director's cut is engaging, it's complex. It's intellectually engaging just as much as it is emotionally. Yeah, because in the way that the theatrical cuts put together, it just trivializes everything. Yeah. I think that's what did it for a lot of people. Well, I think to go on to talk about the writing of the film, Mm. William Monaghan turned in a 190-page or 180-page version of the scripts, I think he said at one point. Yeah, that was the first draft, I think. That was the first draft, and Ridley Scott read it in a weekend. But when it actually came to submitting it to... To 
Fox because they balked at the idea of reading this very extensive, very long script. They actually had to go through and take out all the parentheses. Parentheses, <laughs> yeah. To take the page count down. They actually yeah. shaved off 20 pages just taking off the parentheses. Yeah. Well, that's a tip that you get in screenwriting. But it is, anyway, because yeah. if you hand in a spec script or a script from the outside, yeah. you don't put those in anyway. Well, it's always <laughs> easier to add to a shooting draft. Yeah. Because those really just apply to the actors as well mm. and the director for an idea of how something is being delivered, really. Mm. It's really for guidance for the actors. Mm. But yeah, yeah, so they shaved off 20 pages doing that. And it sounds to me like the writing phase was a very rocky one, that they had a very strong idea of what they wanted the film to be. But Fox had other ideas, specifically the studio head at Fox, who we've spoke about before. <laughs> he has become somewhat notorious <laughs> yeah. on this podcast. And that has been Mr. Tom Rothman, Ugh. a blight on the... Uh, yeah, a blight on cinema. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> Yeah, when it actually came to getting the film greenlit and getting it funded, the note that they kept receiving from Fox was that they did not like a certain subplot. They didn't think it was essential to telling the story. So William Monaghan actually wrote up two versions of the script, one with this specific subplot and one without mm. it. And it's everything concerning Sibylla's son, who is later on revealed to be like the rightful king of Jerusalem. Yeah. And they wanted that character taken out completely. And it essentially gutted the film. So they did a version of the script with that. And that's a script that got greenlit. But Ridley Scott decided no. He wants to make that other script. So they actually had to fit it around a much shorter schedule, I think, actually. Yeah, like, yeah, almost yeah. shoehorn all this other stuff in. But you wouldn't know it yeah. watching the film. It's, yeah, it's, it's funny that even at this stage, they wrote two different versions of the script. Very much like they ended up with at the later stage, where they ended up with, like, two different versions of the film. Yeah. I'm not sure what the contention was, really, because it's not a massive part of the film. In terms of running time, it doesn't take up that much time, but it's very essential. Yeah, it, it parallels a lot of things and informs a lot of other characters as well. And yeah. It just um, baffles me as they, they thought that that wasn't essential. Well, it also provides our main character with a moral question as well at yeah. one point of marrying Sibylla, really, yeah. and having Guy de Lucien killed. Yeah. And he turns it down. He turns it away because he wants to be a good person. Mm. And all that is dulled when you take away that son character. Yeah. I never actually got this far in the theatrical version, but I'd imagine it just once Baldwin dies, it might just seem that Sibylla goes mad for not much reason. Well, Sibylla and Baldwin are brother and sister, and they are very rarely seen on screen at the same time. And part of the reason is because Sibylla does not want to see her brother in the way that he is now. She wants to remember him for who he was years ago mm. before leprosy decimated him. Yeah. So we have these two characters that have barely seen each other, barely been on screen together, and then we are supposed to believe later on that she has a complete breakdown over her brother's death mm. just through one scene of interaction yeah. in which he dies. When really, everything that the film's telling us is that she's almost let go of this person long ago. Yeah. He's been dying a slow death. Yeah. And she's been gradually letting go of him during that period. So her breakdown later on feels entirely unwarranted. Yeah. And it comes out of nowhere. Whereas in the director's cut, we know it's because she's put into a position of killing her son to save him from an undignified and painful death at the hands of leprosy mm. and that informs all of her actions from then on towards the end of the film yeah and it's not even just for that as well it's more towards his standing in the culture as well because yeah. 
Baldwin himself describes it as when he will eventually die, people will think he will have gone to hell because he had leprosy. Leprosy, yeah. And she didn't want this same fate or same outlook to happen to her son. Which ties straight back into the religious elements mm. and the religious significance of him being the king of Jerusalem. Yeah. The kingdom of heaven, the city of God. Yeah. And it just ties into how following Baldwin's death, how much of a linchpin he was in keeping the peace and now that he's there, they're slowly losing the grip on the yeah. calm and everything's descending into chaos and discovering that the boy had leprosy was sort of the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. And uh, everything goes to shit after that, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I imagine it's just more sudden in the theatrical version where it just like It that. is. From the moment that Baldwin dies, we yeah. essentially cut a small act out of the film. Yeah. And we cut straight to Guy de Lucien being crowned king. I think it's another studio thing where we don't want all this stuff because we want to get to the battle sooner. Exactly, and yeah. It's just that, and that's probably it. Because at the end of the day, this film in its shot and scripted form isn't very Hollywood. No. Uh, in fact, I think we're going to now call the theatrical version of this film the Hollywood version of the film. Yeah, I was thinking what we should call it from here on in. And I was thinking <laughs> maybe the Tom Rothman version. <laughs> but I do think, yeah, you're right. It's the Hollywood version of this film. Yeah. And part of that reason is because it, it almost feels to me like Ridley Scott and William Monaghan have been a bit cheeky in the film that they've made as well. Because apparently they did sell it to Fox as being an action adventure in the same vein as Gladiator. <laughs> because they knew that was the only way that they could get this film made. And mm. although it does have epic and grand spectacle in this film, yeah. a truly rousing spectacle... It's much more complex in terms of the story it's trying to yeah. tell. The characters are far more complex. And it is a much longer study on, well, existentialism at times yeah. as well and yeah. what religion means to people and how religion can be exploited to gain power. Yeah, all that's lost in the theatrical cut, I'll say. Almost every single element that works in the director's cut is lost in the Hollywood version or dulled. Yeah, I, I can only imagine the look on there faces when they saw the director's version yeah. <laughs> saying oh no we can't put this in because it makes us look like this and yeah. at the end of the day it's the ideas that it puts across when taken objectively are not scary ideas they're only scary if you think that they are yeah in fact it's only scary if you're part of this film mm-hmm. if you know what i mean like i would say the people that are most scared of the thing are the people that is actually depicting in the film yeah <laughs> so yeah and this film actually riled up both sides of the argument both sides it riled up both um christians and muslims due to some really i would say dishonest reporting yeah prior yeah. to the release of this film from the right-wing media the telegraph that actually said that this film was osama bin laden's version of history that's yeah exactly like it was siding itself with osama bin laden which is entirely dishonest when you actually watch the film oh, because yeah. all it does is it presents the muslims and the christians as having an amount of equally honest and dishonest people yeah, yeah. that are using religion for honest and dishonest reasons yeah. It shows them as being equally flawed, but also equally powerful and equally good. Yeah, I think that's the really great thing about this film, in that it doesn't take sides. No. It just presents it as it is, saying that this is how it is, and yeah. this is what people do. And yes, there are good people, and that there are also bad people. Yeah, If you're wanting to make an argument, they're just selecting bits and pieces out of the film rather than treating yeah. it as a whole. Because yes, there are the bad Christians, which are the Guy de Lucien yeah. people. But then there are also the Muslim side, which are not entirely justified in what they're doing. But at the, at the end of the day, it's a film about being honourable. Yeah, and it's about God not being a certain place mm. or a certain time. 
that God is in goodness, I would say as well. Yeah. That it's saying that no matter what you worship, to be good is to be spiritual. Yeah. It's is to find God. Yeah. It's, 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 almost a, that. it's almost a comment on religious structure as well. Yeah. And fanaticism on both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, fanaticism in general, how, how dangerous it can be and how wrong it can be. Uh, and that's not the point. Well, I love that line from Salahuddin. Salhadin. Sal Salhadin. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I added a U there. But yeah. yeah I, there's, <laughs> a line from, there's a line from Salhadin yeah. that is really strong. And it's when uh, Balian asks him, what does Jerusalem mean to him? And he says, nothing. And then he walks a couple of steps and turns around and he balls up his fists and says, everything. And I love that exactly what that signifies is that spiritually, Jerusalem is just a place. It's just stones and mortar. It doesn't mean anything spiritually. There isn't God in those walls. Mm. But in terms of power, it means everything. Yeah. Like, and, and, and I love that parallel and that the, the characters are aware of that, mm. that like, there's no such thing as a holy place. Yeah, because at the end of the day, that's exactly what is still going on and what it says even by the end. This is still yeah. in the same situation now. And this is where it really started. Yeah. But I think they are big ideas and obviously some would say bold ideas if you're Mm -hmm. that leaning. But they are ideas that people of a certain ilk would find hard to stomach. Yeah. It's one of those films that I'm kind of almost astounded. And it's probably only due to the fact that they almost told lies about what the film was actually going to be. That they managed to get the thing made. Yeah, it is. I think if they'd known what the final outcome would have been, they would never invested money in it. Especially considering that this film came out in 2005, where yeah. we were still in the midst of the Iraq oh, yeah. War, I think. Yeah, and yeah. yeah it, was, it was a very kind of, I would say, inflammatory time to release this film, but it was an important film to be released. Yeah. And I think it's, once more, it's come round again. It's just as important today as it was then. Yeah, I, I think it's even more relevant now, especially as we're getting more and more instances of like migrant crisis and things like that. I think it's almost a comment on that, obviously, because at the end of the day, the Christians... They've journeyed there, yeah, and uh, it's almost about about people being in the wrong places, and, yeah. And again, it's about people coexisting together and how fragile that can be, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's just as relevant, if not more, than it was even when it was made. Because again, it's a bit more general than just what was happening at the time. I think I think that fueled things, but I think it's more about much deeper things that have been going on throughout history. Yeah, yeah. Rather than that just only that particular conflict being brought to yeah. the surface by a particular conflict, yeah. but yeah, they've been there and rooted in history yeah. for a very long time. Yeah. And I, I don't think that this film will ever lose relevance. The names might no, change. No. The names uh, between the warring sides might change. But this will always be an issue that we have to face, I think, yeah. which is this clash of ideologies and religious ideologies and this struggle for power and this struggle to find a home and to find God, I guess, will continue forever, I imagine. Yeah. So th- I can only see this film growing in relevance or at least staying relevant over time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we've really already kind of jumped into discussing the film now. So Mm. there isn't really much else I have on the making of the film in terms of importance. There are no really other salient parts of this film's making that I have to mention. So, yeah, I think it's actually time we jump straight into, as we have been doing, we jump straight into Daisy Ridley's Kingdom of Heaven. (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine Ridley Scott with pigtails now for some odd reason. (laughs) I'm a little girl. <laughs> Sorry, it took me a moment to register that. Yeah. that. Have, you, have you ever seen that? I think it's Dieter from Sprockets, which is like no. Mike Myers. is like a German TV host. And like when he gets happy, it's like, I'm as happy as a little girl. <laughs> like that. No. So, uh, yeah. 
Okay, so we've talked a little bit about what this film is about, what the story is, who the characters are, how they work in the film. But, I mean, one of the things that we really have to move on to is the cast. And it is truly an embarrassment of riches mm. when you look at this cast. Then I would say they're all done a disservice by the theatrical cut. Well, yeah, Every single one of them. <laughs> especially in the, in the theatrical version, because some of those actors aren't even in the film. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, and I just want to give a rundown of yeah. the people that are in this film. Yeah. Obviously, you have Orlando Bloom. You have Eva Green, Liam Neeson, David Thewlis, Michael Sheen, Kevin McKidd. Nicolaj, Nikolai, Nicola, Nicole, <laughs> Nicole, Papa, Co- Costa Nicole. Waldo, the guy from Game of Thrones. I don't know how to pronounce his name, yeah. but everybody knows him from Game of Thrones. <laughs> Martin Sokas, or Martin Sokas, is yeah, it? Yeah, the silent C. Uh, Brendan Gleeson, Alexander Siddig, Martin Hancock, um, who I really like as well in this film, mm-hmm. and he's almost completely cut out of the theatrical cut. He does have the first line of the film, though. He does, he does, yeah. which is just... Crusaders, yes, in the which, theatrical which cut. Shit, it's just awful. <laughs> it's like Crusaders, yeah. Thank there you, they are. <laughs> thank you for nailing that right on the head. <laughs> you complete bellend. Uh, <laughs> we have Edward Norton, yep. John Finch in his last ever role, finally working with Ridley Scott as well after being cast as Kane in Alien, and then having yeah, to yeah. walk away for medical reasons. I think yeah, it was for yeah. health reasons at the time. I think he was it diabetes. Yeah, or something yeah, like it that? Was. yeah. Jeremy Irons, Ghassan Masood. And Ian Glenn, who turns up for a little cameo at the end of the film this is as well. Sean Connery moment. Yeah, it is. It Sean is. Connery, Richard Lyon. It is, moment. yeah. But it's almost like where this film ends. It starts another story that I'm like, oh, I want to see as well. Yeah, that's Kingdom of Hell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kingdom to Hell. <laughs> Kingdom to the streets. Raised on the streets. <laughs> so we're going to keep talking about this fucking awful yeah. King Arthur trailer. Raised on the streets. Dead in the sheets. Dead in the water already. <laughs> But yeah, it's just an embarrassment of Richards. Even if you know half of that cast, that is an amazing cast. Yeah, it really is. So who works and who doesn't? I think we have to start with Orlando Bloom as Balian, who I think many criticised him in the theatrical cut for being wooden. And well, one note, I guess. I mean, I watched the theatrical cut this morning and his whole arc is just rubbished. Yeah, it's almost as if the edit is done deliberately to make his performance look bad. Yes. Because when you watch the director's cut, he does a fine job. Yeah. He's really quite good. But yeah, in the theatrical, he's just a big nothing in the film. Yeah. Because all his moments have been cut out. (laughs) Yeah, all the motivations for the way that he's acting has been completely nullified by the theatrical cut. And I would not call Orlando Bloom one of my favourite actors. I do think he is a touch on the wooden side. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, very common for people to just jump on that bandwagon and nail him down with it. But I think this film actually plays to his strengths. Mm. And both Ridley Scott and William Monaghan use him very, very well. And like I say, play him up the right way. Which is they give him reason for being so emotionally closed off. Yeah. We find out that he's not just lost a wife to suicide, but he's lost an unborn child as well. Yeah. We find out that he is a man who has seen and lived through war we find out he is essentially a man who feels that he has been abandoned by god now that is touched upon in the theatrical cut but it's expanded upon in the director's yeah. cut and, so and, and great as a really, as a really shitty half brother as well yeah, oh yeah and, it, and it's what family he does have is a priest played by martin sheen so there we have a god element as well what connection he does have to religion through his family essentially is trying to corrupt him yeah Uh, That sets up the character perfectly. That's why he's cold. That's why he's distant. That's why he's calculated. Whereas in the theatrical cut, all that's just breezed over. I think you barely get a glimpse of that. Well, they've got to get to Liam Neeson. That's the thing. For his five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the film all of like 13 minutes. Yeah. In the theatrical, 
it's all about getting to Jerusalem as quickly as possible for reasons. But it's because it's called Kingdom of yeah, Heaven. And everything else falls by the wayside. It's yeah. Just, it's like you're watching a fast forward version of the film. <laughs> it is. Yeah, in the theatrical, you get to Jerusalem after about 33 minutes. Whereas I'm pretty sure in the director's cut, it's after about like 56, 57 Yeah, minutes it's close to an hour. Like yeah. It really is. It kind of does slow down a little bit after that point. Uh, when they actually do get to Jerusalem, there are some glaring emissions, though. But, yeah. I mean, getting to that point is that, and that's where a vast bulk of the footage has been excised. Yes, it is. And, again, once you get to Sibylla's subplot, yeah. then also that's where yeah. you get huge leaps yeah. as well. And then one major one at the end as well, in regards to Martin Soka's character, yeah. Guy de Lucien, mm-hmm. who um, just disappears from the film. We have yeah. a few characters that simply just disappear. David Thewlis is another one. Yeah. Uh, talking about David Thewlis, he is the film's spiritual core. He is the only spiritually sound character in the entire film in terms of any other kind of representations of spirituality and religion that we have yeah. are corrupt in some way or acting in a corrupt way. Even Salahadin as well mm. like as we know that he is waging war on jerusalem over a tragedy or massacre that befell his people the muslims that once lived there 100 years before he has no connection to them he knows that it's just for power yeah so the only real spiritual strong core of that film is david thewlis and all of his spiritual scenes are excised from the film completely <laughs> i mean ridley scott yeah. and william monaghan actually talked about him being a, an actual guardian angel a literal angel because mm. at one point he disappears as well he almost seems to pop up in Balian's life just when he needs it, just when mm. he needs that spiritual lift. Yeah. In this film, he disappears and then becomes a head in a pile. That I mean, which is the David Thewlis way. That's his whole thing is he's always getting his head cut off. <laughs> <laughs> now, to round back to Orlando Bloom, I also think one of the reasons in which his performance has been heavily criticised like I say, we've got one reason, which is the theatrical cut does him a complete disservice, as it does many of the characters in the film. But also, I think that many people came to this film with the baggage of Gladiator and the expectations of Gladiator. And that's no fault to them, because the film was sold as mm. a spiritual sequel to Gladiator. That's yeah, how yeah. Fox decided to sell this well, film. Well, it says on the poster, from the makers of Gladiator. Exactly, yeah. It's not the fault of audiences for coming to this film with that baggage. Mm. And unfortunately, it did Orlando Bloom a complete disservice in that way. Because he is not Maximus. No. He is not Russell Crowe. It's a completely different character. But it's a completely different film. That's that's the whole point, really. That They marketed the film as being a film that it was not. Yeah. And obviously, even if they'd released the director's cut as the theatrical version, I still think it would have left people disappointed because that's not the film that they were sold. Yeah. And again, yeah, the, the character of Balian is completely different to Maximus. I mean, he's not a stronger character, but he's just as honorable, but in just different ways. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this is the film where they ultimately lose. But that's the point. I love that. That's the way it's played. But I think in the theatrical version, in excising so many of the guts of the film, that it makes the losing part look much worse to a general audience. Specifically because, as well, the theatrical cut of the film really paints Balian's arc as being someone who simply grows to be a good fighter. Yeah. Whereas in the director's cut, he's already a good fighter. He's already a quick learner. He's seen war before. He knows how to fight. And Liam Neeson, his father, just teaches him new ways to fight. Yeah. Him fighting isn't the arc here. Yeah. Well, in the director's, it's more about him teaching him new ways to fight, but also new ways to think. Yes. And again, it's more about the thinking rather than the fighting. Yeah. In the director's cut, where, yeah, in the theatrical, it's just all about the fighting. 
Well, that's the thing. I think uh, to make the comparison to Gladiator, because, I mean, I, I think we have to. Many people yeah. already do. I would call Kingdom of Heaven the better film yeah. in the director's cut version. I love Gladiator. I do think yeah. it's another one of Ridley Scott's masterworks. But when we actually look at the character of Maximus, he is a simple character motivated by revenge, played very, very well mm. by Russell Crowe. Mr. Australian Man. <laughs> <laughs> I almost said Ridley Scott then. <laughs> I'd love to see Maximus played by Ridley Scott. But um, I think that's a very well-told, simple story with a very strong, simple motivation to its main character. Mm. Whereas I think Balian, although he's played by a lesser actor, because I do think when you compare Russell Crowe and Orlando Bloom, Orlando Bloom's always going to come off second best. Yeah, yeah. I think he's played by a lesser actor, but he is a far more complex character mm. and he isn't motivated by a simple revenge. Yeah. He's suffering an existential crisis. He's asking where his God is. Well, it is a, just a far more complex film, full stop. It's, yeah. it's dealing with much more complex ideas and even just the landscapes of it are just a lot more varied and it covers a lot more ground than Gladiator does. Yeah. I like to say, Gladiator is a crowd pleaser, whereas this is a less popularist film. It is, yeah. It's almost in that way that we always go back to, which is Gladiator's a perfect movie. Kingdom of Heaven's a perfect film. <laughs> Damn it, I'm trying to make a movie here, not a film. <laughs> What's that from now? <laughs> Bowfinger. That's it, yeah. Episode 12 at Best Forgotten Movies. Yeah. Although we may re-record it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's really unfortunate how the theatrical version treats some of these actors yeah. as well because it just makes everything else just so much slight. I mean, the, the main thing I noticed in the theatrical version is just how on the nose everything is mm -hmm. just purely for the fact that there's so much um, ADR at the beginning that's used to rush the plot through Yeah, and they're really clunky bits of ADR as well where you can obviously if you know that there is a longer scene there you know that they've just used that to pace one and three together to get rid of two yeah. and uh, it immediately weakens the film and it immediately weakens the actor's performance as well because mm -hmm. Liam Neeson in the director's cut is so much stronger yeah. performance than it is in the theatrical version. And because he's in the film for a short time and that includes the director's cut, he is in the film I'd say for the first half hour yeah. 40 minutes, Yeah, he leaves such a lasting impression yeah. that it's felt throughout the rest of the film yeah. and we see it in Balian's actions as well. One of the other actors I really want to talk about as well, and I've already spoke about how her character differs between versions, but is Eva Green as an actress. Yeah. Because yeah. this was the first Eva Green film that I had actually seen. Although, no, The Dreamers came out before this, didn't it? Of course I saw, you watched The Dreamers. I saw The Dreamers, of course I saw <laughs> Everybody's that. watched The Dreamers. Well, I've also read the book that it's based on, but that wasn't the reason I actually saw it. <laughs> no, I don't think that was anyone's reason. It's for. just uh, Les Enfants Terribles. <laughs> we all saw it to see Michael Pitt's penis. Of course! <laughs> Who wouldn't want to? Jeez, that's why everybody was locked into that film. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was either that or Eva Green's Merkin, so... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's Michael Merkin Pitt. sounds like a little creature to me. I thought That, that say... looks exactly like pubic hair. <laughs> like Angela Merkin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, well. But, yeah, mm. so of course I saw The Dreamers, but yeah. yeah. Eva Green in this film, amazing. It's a real strong performance. She's fierce in her own way. She's one of the emotional cause of the film, yeah. in my opinion. Whereas in the theatrical, you could almost describe her as being a floozy. 
Yeah. She's a really two-dimensional female character. She's the forbidden love. Yeah. It's almost like she's a femme fatale in yeah. that way. It's like, oh, if you if you sleep with her, it's going to get you in trouble, guy. That, that's the thing with the performances in the theatrical version, because they've been gutted so much that they're fine, but they're not remarkable. Yeah. Whereas all the remarkable stuff is in the director's cut. Yeah, it is. And it makes all the other stuff as well mean so much more yeah, yeah. in context with the scenes that have been deleted. Well, the theatrical is just the bare bones of the film to get it through from beginning to end. It feels like the theatrical cut of the film is the treatment. This is what the structure's gonna be. Drafts Um, and drafts and drafts later, you've slowly added more meat to those bones. So it almost feels like, well, it is definitely a massive step back, this film. It's like stepping back in terms of screenplays. Yeah, this is why I can only imagine how much of a frustrating experience it would have been to both write and edit this film. I mean, even just for the writer to watch your film that you've written and put so much work into and put so much depth into be slowly made shallower and shallower. Yeah. It must have been very disheartening, mm-hmm. especially as, you know, your first big gig as well. Yeah. And you're watching it fall apart in front of your eyes. To be honest, it is a perfect introduction to the working nature of Hollywood, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, you know what? You created this thing, but it's not yours anymore. No. But yeah, I think the, the person who's most upset is the editor. Yeah, definitely. She's at point of tears on the documentary. And I think because the documentary was recorded quite a while before the film was embraced again. Yeah. She's almost talking about it as if it was a complete disaster. Yeah. And that this once great film is now in the gutter. Yeah, been rendered completely mediocre. Yeah. Uh, when obviously, ultimately, following that director's cut release which had the documentary on it and that's no longer the case mm-hmm. and obviously she's now justified in her thoughts for it but yeah it, it did feel like the real battle was lost in the cutting room <laughs> it does it does and i mean we spoke about this previously so i don't want to draw upon it too much but it does feel like it's a recurring theme in ridley scott's filmography i would say mm. it's just he's forever not fighting the good fight where it matters most yeah legends another classic example of that yeah where the director's cut is far superior to the mm-hmm. other cuts that were made yeah with ridley scott you just there's always just an abundance of cuts lying around yeah and in fact, probably one of the only cuts that isn't better than the original is probably Gladiator, actually. Yeah, I think Gladiator is slightly too long mm. in the director's cut version. And also, I would say Alien as well. I like some of the stuff that they added, but I don't like that they actually took away stuff, that they damaged the length. I like the slow nature of the film. Yeah. I always refer to it as a bit of a novelty, and I think so has yeah. Ridley Scott yeah. as well. It's not a true director's cut. It was something he was asked to do. Yeah, it was a marketing choice to call yeah. it the director's cut rather than extended edition. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not extended, it's shorter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to the actors for just a second, yeah. one of them, I think, survives both cuts in terms of still putting in a very strong performance and all of their motivation coming through is Edward Norton as yes. King Baldwin the Leper. Yeah, I'd say it's a revelatory performance from Edward Norton because it's a bit like the... Um, I know what you're going to say, Gary Oldman, Hannibal. Bit, yeah, it's a bit like yep. the Gary Oldman, Hannibal, where it's almost like an uncredited performance. It was. Obviously, he's credited at the end. No, only there's... in this cut. Ah, when right, it was released okay. at the cinema, he was not credited whatsoever. Oh, yeah, because so I actually watched it, and I remember thinking, oh, I wonder who played him. I had no idea it was Edward Norton, <laughs> and it didn't come up in the yeah. credits. It's a great mask performance as well, because um, having known and having myself performed with a mask, it's a very different experience to when you're just performing as yourself. And yeah, it's a very transformational performance, because there's nothing to really indicate that it is Edward Norton. It's almost like, yeah, it's Edward Norton. No, it's some other guy playing that, isn't it? <laughs> But no, it's it's a very strong performance and it's like he's in the film very sparingly, but he's such a central figure in the whole film and without him it doesn't work. I'd say every scene that he is in is made stronger by his presence. Yeah. And 
it's interesting to note that he wasn't originally targeted for Baldwin the Leopard King. Mm. They actually wanted Edward Norton to play Guy. Right. But as soon as he read the script, he immediately called them back and said that he wanted King Baldwin. Yeah. He made it his own. And it was by his request that they actually took his name off the marketing and the credits. And it was reinstated for home video. Mm. Much like Gary Oldman did with Hannibal. He didn't want his name to distract from his performance. Yeah. And it was a it was a wise choice, it, honestly, because I had no idea when I first saw this film, even in its theatrical form, that it was Edward Norton. Mm. And it is an amazing performance, especially considering the restrictions. Yes, yeah. Did they actually have anyone else in mind for that part? I don't know, actually. Although I do know that one of the actors that was briefly considered for the role of Balian was Paul Bettany. Oh, right, okay. I can see why. Yeah, yeah. No, because I like I said it in its actual proper form. I think Orlando Bloom works perfectly well as that part. Yeah, and in essence, his career has really been threw off the rails by the underperformance of this mm. film as well. I think that's why he hasn't headlined a film since. Really, mm. he's been a part of films. He's been a supporting character, a supporting actor, but I don't think uh, he's headlined a film of this nature or of this scale, of this yeah, budget yeah. since. And I think it's definitely due to his treatment in the theatrical, like yeah. now where everything's just stripped away yeah. to basically make the performance as wooden as possible. Yeah. And like I say, I think he does a fine job in this film. And there are certainly directors out there that really could use Orlando Bloom to his full potential. Mm. I, I, and unfortunately, I don't think he will get that chance again, really. No. No. But also, at the end of the day, he is involved in what I would call one of the very best films of the last 20 years. Yes. So if it comes at that cost, it's almost yeah. like uh, this film will outlast him yeah, <laughs> in a yeah. way, as well as it should outlast us all. Yeah, yeah. And before we move on to the filmmaking, I do think that there are two more performances that I really want to shine a light on. And one is Martin Sokas as Guy de Lucien. And the other one is the fantastic Brendan Gleeson yeah. as a Renard of Chatillon. Yeah. I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm really yeah. trying, guys, with this pronunciation <laughs> here. It's not my strong point, mm. but I'm really going for it. It's because you're just a lad from the streets. Exactly. Born on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> I come from the same place as King Arthur. Yeah. Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, TM. What a really bad idea. Yeah, that's what my parents <laughs> thought. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we have to speak about Brennan Gleeson yeah. as well um, as Martin Sokas. Mm. First off, Martin Sokas, who we know from Born As man who gets beaten by a magazine. The most <laughs> dignified of credits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've always liked him. He's one of those actors that really hasn't burst through to the kind of level he deserves, really, yeah, as yeah. well. He's always secondary. He's always of the supporting cast. But I think he actually uh, makes an impression on this film. Yeah, yeah. He's a strong adversary for Balian. Mm. And it's a shame, like I say, in the theatrical version that he just disappears halfway yeah, through yeah. he's captured and then that is the last we see of him there is no final confrontation between mm. him and balian where he is dealt one final blow which is to rise a night and again it's one of those things where his performance is not served by the edit either it no. makes his portrayal of the character seem very cartoony yeah it's like he's um, a pantomime villain yeah at times and the same with brendan gleason as well mm. although i wouldn't say that much of his performance was edited down for the theatrical version it's just that the rest of the film around him because he stands out more as a sore thumb as well in terms of his performance it's very yeah. over the top yeah he's chewing that scenery yeah uh, but you're supposed to be crazed and mad yeah, and yeah. racist and horrible <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. all that comes across deliciously mm. 
He is a he's great in this role. I would say it's one of the great Brendan Gleeson performances, in mm. my opinion. But yeah, he is just a mad bastard. <laughs> I wish Brendan Gleeson was given more opportunity to act so over the top <laughs> to chew more scenery. Is there anybody else that we have to mention as well? Um, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, Jeremy Irons as Tiberius. Yes, far better than Batman vs Superman. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a film he's openly criticised anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And he's actually one of the better aspects of Batman vs Superman as well, yeah, along yeah. with Ben Affleck. I mean, that's something that we perhaps will save for another day. Oh, yes, for a rainy day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very rainy, dark, We've got gloomy, nothing else to do. No parents nothing kind of day. Nothing else to watch, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a slightly more um, functional role in this film than, than some of the other parts. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more of a thankless role than, say, some of the more showy parts in this film. But yeah, he's more of like a glue element there. Yeah, he's functioning as connective tissue, really. Yeah. He's uh, connecting us, the audience, through Balian to Jerusalem and yeah. just laying out there how it all works. He's our character that really delivers most of the exposition, but not in an over-the-top way like his, how everything works. It's done in a way that while he's talking about it, we get to see a glimpse of that when the yeah, Templars yeah. are hung as well. I always like that Ridley Scott always does opt to show you as well. He's almost like the surrogate for Baldwin. Yes. He's the figure that Baldwin can no longer be because of his physical disabilities yeah yeah he is his presence yeah. where baldwin is not yeah speaking of connective tissue that Dodie dawn actually speaks about in the documentary as being lost between the cuts of this film is the connective tissue yeah it does feel like a lot of the scenes are working in isolation to each other yeah and i, I can't think of much of jeremy irons performance that has been dialed back for the theatrical cut but it, you do get that feeling like everything else around it is dulled, like all that connection tissue is lost, and it's a much colder film Yeah. as a result of it. So you do get actors and characters like that that just disappear. Yeah, it's just it's very unengaging. It's a slog. To, mm. to say it as it is, it is a slog. Mm. Like I say, I'm just looking at the cast list again. Like Kevin McKidd's in it for mm. about 40 minutes, and yeah. he's an actor that I've always thought deserved more. He mm. gets a nice introduction in this film good solid action scene as well mm. and uh, then disappears in a shipwreck <laughs> yeah which um gives us an opportunity to move on to some of the filmmaking aspects of this mm. film now we've talked about Dodie dawn the editor quite extensively so far because well she is integral to this film and both its cuts as well although she's not the reason why the film has been cut down she is probably one of the more vocal characters involved in the editing process yeah, yeah. as the editor yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that one of the genius things about her and Ridley Scott's work on this film is that they actually create scenes out of nothing. Yeah. Because one of their grand ideas very early on in production was to actually begin the film with a shipwreck. But William Monaghan was worried. He wanted to explore the background of his protagonist rather than start the film with a sole survivor. So they just kept the idea in their back pocket and made it a Mm. part of the film. So instead of starting at that point, it's now 40 minutes into the first act. Now, originally, the cut was going to be that they're staring out to the Mediterranean as they see these ships leaving, and it's being described to us as a perilous journey that many people lose their lives on. Mm. And originally, from that point of Balin looking out to sea, knowing he was going to have to tackle this, it was originally going to cut to him straight on a desert island being the sole survivor of a shipwreck. Mm. And that was supposed to be how it worked in the film. And obviously, when they got to the editing phase, they realized it was just too jarring of a transition. So how did they go about rectifying that? Can you tell us <laughs> a little bit, Andy? Yeah, it's just by taking a lot of B-roll footage yep. 
and digitally manipulating it to be something else. Mm -hmm. So yeah, literally creating something out of nothing. So what they were able to do was take a lot of B-roll footage and probably a bit of first unit footage of wealth from the later siege scenes of citizens cowering as they're being attacked whilst they're being firebombed and everything like that in the, in the nighttime oh, shots. So a lot of scenes of that and obviously some scenes from Balian doing the same thing. And what they were able to do through a process of CGI, a lot of colour correction, sound effects... And, a um, lot of color yeah, correction. and clever cutting together, as well as obviously adding any new visual effects of the actual ships and stuff. They were able to create a short scene of Balian and other people on a boat as it's being involved in this huge storm. And it's literally created out of nothing. And they did things very similar to Gladiator when they were um, trying to finish Oliver Reed's performance. Yeah, it did remind me of that quite a lot. Obviously, in the scenes I shot, Balian is wearing all his armor. And in the ship scene, he wouldn't be wearing it at that point. So they were able to digitally take away his clothing and replace it with something else, uh, like a tunic, basically what yeah. he was wearing on the port scenes. And it's done so well that when I was watching it, I had no idea. And then when we looked at the documentary, it was like, oh, shit, that's what they did? Yeah. I'd say they're examples of very good visual effects where you have absolutely no idea what they've done. Yeah, because in my opinion, and we're going to talk about Arthur Max very shortly. Mm. In my opinion, this is a perfect film in the way that it looks and in the way that it integrates both practical effects and CGI. Yeah. And we'll get into that later. But I do think that this sequence is just a perfect example of just what can be achieved mm. with cgi i mean yeah. it, cgi is overused and we see that oh, with yeah, yeah. the likes of the hobbit and even exodus which is one of ridley scott's previous films but looking at this film it's, it's just astounding what they achieved with yeah. so very little i think it also helped at the time because they edited this film in london they were literally just down the road from moving pitch company which were doing a vast amount of the visual effects and the compositing. Yeah. So they were able to go down as they were editing and look at the shots as they yeah. were being created and then import them straight away. So it was a, a much more harmonious mm-hmm. post-production process in that aspect, not in some of the other ways. Yeah. <laughs> it was harmonious. But in terms of the fact that they could get the visual effects and the edit working together, helped a lot. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a very good mix of the two because uh, epics in the way that were made in the past were everything will be in camera those days are gone but this is a very good compromise in that it's melding the new technology with the older way of thinking so this is yeah. a modern epic but it's done in such a way that it still makes you feel uh, the same way mm-hmm. that the old epics used to make you feel exactly in yeah way. they were literally were a thousand people mm-hmm. in that scene yeah whereas in this film it's probably about 100 200 people but exactly yeah. it still gives off that same feeling it does I feel like it has the gravitas of one of those old epics as Mm. well. Like I was saying earlier, it does feel like it's a film that you have to dedicate an entire day to, (laughs) like those old films, but it feels like it has the weight of them as well. Yeah, especially the Roadshade one where it has the overture and the intermission in it as well. Oh, it's fantastic. That's the version that I usually always jump to watching because I really like Harry Gregson Williams' music as well for this film. I think it's actually my favourite Harry Gregson Williams score, even though there is an incredible amount of temp tracking in this film. Yeah, yeah. He's so damn posh yeah. as well, if you've seen him as well. It's I like, have. Uh, one would think, one would like, one would lit like this. Um, yeah, yeah. I've never seen poverty. Yeah. <laughs> that is him down to the T. He's got that kind of professor speak about yeah, him as well, yeah. because I know that he likes to teach as well. Yeah. 
But yeah, I think it is my favourite Harry Gregson Williams score. Yeah. I, I think he's somewhat hot and cold as a composer. I do appreciate him. It's it's interesting to note as well that Hans Zimmer was actually the original choice for this film, mm. but unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, he couldn't take it. So Harry Gregson Williams took over, mm. and uh, the film he gave up was in fact Madagascar, which <laughs> went on to be then composed by Hans Zimmer. <laughs> So they did Weird. almost a swap over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think this film benefits from having a different sound than Gladiator. Yeah, yeah, because I think it would have been tonally shifted more in that way. Whereas, yeah, yeah. this is very distinct. I'd say it's probably a little bit more authentic sounding. Mm-hmm. Not that it would be of the time, but it just feels more authentic sounding than, say, the Gladiator score, which is very stylized. It's not going for anything to do with the period at all. No. Whereas this is a little bit of a more of a hybrid I mean, it is big at times, but it's a lot more subtle as yeah, well when yeah. it needs to be. And I love some of the melodies as well. Yeah. Um, also, this film has the best use of the two uses of Vicomium, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, the Patrick Cassidy opera track that was originally uh, composed for Hannibal. Hannibal, yeah. And it was used in a Hannibal TV show as well to a great effect. But <laughs> I'd say that this film is the one in which it's used properly and perfectly because it's almost background in Hannibal you almost don't get to hear it properly yeah whereas in this one that the music's serving a purpose it is more background in Hannibal because it is actually against the backdrop of a performance yes whereas this is maybe being used in a more traditional sense Mm -hmm. where it's invoking the feeling rather than something that somebody's just watching yeah again the the use of the temp tracks is very good because apart from that cue which I knew existed from another film yeah, anyway. Yeah, because of prior knowledge. I didn't see the join because there's some cues for some completely unrelated films. Like I know there's a Marco Beltrami cue yep. from um, Blade 2 in there somewhere. <laughs> and it's actually Mark Streitenfeld doing the music editing on this one as well. Oh, is it? I think he's sort of almost like gearing up to be working with Ridley like for the full time. phase yeah. of his career, really. Yeah. So I think he was in charge of putting the temp track together and obviously sorting it out for the director's cut as well. Because mm-hmm. I'd imagine by the time they did the director's cut that Harry Griggs and Williams would have moved on. Yeah, and it's strange to actually think about this film as having an incredible amount of temp tracking because it achieves an incredible consistency Yeah, throughout. You wouldn't know unless you actually knew the tracks that it wasn't from the same source. Well, you can say that about the whole film. I mean, this is yeah. a film in its director's cut version that has no dodgy bits. Even in the theatrical version technically there's no dodgy bits it's just yeah. the way that's been put together that hampers it but there's no dodgy shots there's no dodgy performances yeah it is very consistent all the way through yeah and one of the things that really works for this film talking about it having no dodgy shots is the production design from yeah. arthur max who has worked with Ridley Scott for quite a while, up until Alien Covenant. He's not working on Alien Covenant. Oh, is he not? No, it's somebody else. I can't remember who. But uh, The Martian was the last film he worked with. I think he was unsure about repeating himself after working on both Prometheus and The Martian, which have quite similar production design elements. Yeah, yeah. And I think he was quite early in terms of turning it down to work on another film. I can't remember what else he's actually moved on to. Give yourself a fresh perspective. Uh, No, the last film that he actually worked on was The Martian. He has nothing up ahead. Maybe, maybe he's retired. Yes, and maybe he has retired. If he has done, well, he's, he's got, I had a great run. Yeah, it's a hell of a career. Yeah. I, I do think that this film is one of the shining achievements of yes, that career. definitely. Especially when it comes to the Jerusalem set, mm. which is both extensive and beautiful. 
that's the kind of stuff where it really reminds me of, in terms of scale at least, it reminds me and invokes memories of like David Lean films. Yes. Like Passage to India and, and Lawrence of Lawrence Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia, of course. Build, yeah. Like Passage to India where they built a huge set for that. Yeah. There's so many films that are made of this kind of scale that can't escape that feeling that you're on a set or you're in a studio or there's a blue screen just out of sight. This film doesn't have that. It feels like everything is in camera. And although there is some digital trickery, it's the right amount. Mm. And it just feels like everything's achievable. And this world is one that you could walk through personally as well. I mean, I, I also think that's something that's been missing from Ridley Scott's other epic, well, his attempt at an epic, which was Exodus Gods and Kings, mm. which I personally think is another case of it being a simply mediocre film with a better one in the edit somewhere. Mm. Because I do remember that he mentioned that they did have a three hour long cut or a three and a half hour long cut. And there was talk about that being released. And that's the version he wanted out there, but it never got released in the end for one Mm. reason or another. And I think that reason is that unlike Kingdom of Heaven, where they built pretty much everything, all of their special effects shots, especially the ones that were cut, were already pretty much done because they were in camera. Whereas Exodus relied a hell of a lot on CGI. Yeah. And because that director's cut would require a hell of a lot more CGI, I think that's the reason that it's we've not seen that director's mm. cut materialized because yeah. it would require a lot more money. I mean, yeah. there were a lot more digital shots for Kingdom of Heaven between the two versions, but um there's a hell of a lot more practical effects as well to yeah. rely on. Yeah, it's more doable. Yeah. But I think also that that film is hampered by almost being the exact opposite of what this film is and that this film for its Muslim characters, yeah. actually cast genuine people from the region. Yeah. Whereas, and real-life Muslims, yeah. Whereas um, Exodus, Gods and Kings, it's gone back to old Hollywood. It really has, yeah. yeah. But well, Because they are main parts, I imagine the only reason he was able to cast authentically for this film is that they were not leading roles, they were supporting roles. Yeah. For example, if Balian had been a Middle Eastern character, the no. studios would have had a problem with that, yeah. unfortunately. And I think that's what happened to Exodus Gods and Kings. In fact, they made the completely wrong decision on that. And in fact, the film was uh, attacked and derided for being backwards. Yeah. In a way, the studio shot themselves in the foot on that one quite majorly. Well, that's it. I think they've chased the star power rather than Mm. authenticity, which is something that Kingdom of Heaven achieves that Exodus does not. Kingdom Mm. of Heaven has an authenticity about it. And that goes through the entirety of the production, from the writing to the casting to the production design to the shooting. It feels authentically, like I say, it's like it's a place that you feel like you can walk in yourself. Whereas Exodus, even though it's technologically advanced and stylized to be a 21st century epic, its casting is 1950s. Yes, it is. (laughs) And I think that Exodus would make a good companion piece with this film just as a point of debate. Because it's interesting to see two films that deal with very similar subjects that are about men trying to find God for one reason or another. And they come to say different things based on that. But it's a, it's interesting to compare the two and see how it deals with that and where the flaws are in one that happen to be the strength in another. Mm. And so maybe that's something that we will touch upon in the future. But um, yeah, 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 I think it would make it a very interesting companion just, to, just for <laughs> debating purposes. Yes. And you are a master debater. I am. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, such a childish. Oh, it's right there, yeah. Oh. 
So we've already mentioned it quite a lot, but following the production of the film, there was a lot of problems as regards the post-production, i.e. the editing on the film. And so we have mentioned it quite considerably, but the main thing that seems to have been uh, misconstrued are two entirely separate ideas that were for some reason melded into one. So the first idea from the studio was that the film was too long. Yeah. So when they put the film together and they were happy with it flow-wise and pretty much what the director's cut is now, it was about three hours and five minutes long. And they viewed the film and said, yeah, it was too long because they wanted it two hours, 20 minutes so they could get repeat showings. I don't quite understand how that would equate, though, because I'm pretty sure it has to be under 135 minutes to get more than one showing in a day. So their reasoning and the length that they got is actually rather futile, Mm -hmm. especially given the fact that you've got other films like Lord of the Rings being, you know, around about three hours and doing really well. I I felt that at this time it felt less important. Yeah, it felt like Tom Rothman's idea of what people were willing to sit through was very backwards, more rooted in the 80s and 90s than what was currently big in cinema at the time because like say lord of the rings they were long films and people flocked to them in their droves yeah because i know that on the documentary they kept talking about the bum ache factor and i was like this is a film that actually feels longer in its theatrical version than it does in the director's (laughs) cut just because it's so much more engrossing yeah so because you care so much more it just whisks you away yeah whereas with the theatrical cut like you said before it's a slog because you're not engaged with it at all and then the other idea was the the subplot involving the boy. And these two ideas, the subplot of the boy and get, making it shorter, got mixed up together. Mm-hmm. They seemed to be one and the same thing to the studio. And basically what happened was Dodie Dawn was tasked with making two versions of the film. Mm-hmm. One with the boy and one without. And it got to a point where things were getting cut back so much that, in fact, both versions were roughly the same length, so it made the exercise very futile. And yeah. basically highlighted that there was a problem that wasn't there. They essentially created their own problem. Yeah, they did. And, and again, I think it was just the studio was scared of the film that had been created, so they were trying to diminish the effects of it yeah. as much as possible. And again, this is where Ridley says, oh, I'm very user-friendly to studios, and it's almost like you want to shout at the screen go, no, Ridley, stop being so user-friendly because yeah. you're damaging your own films and um it's very anticlimactic the documentary as well because you have all this stuff they make the film it's, it looks so good it almost ends on a, on a really off note, Sad where note yeah yeah where it's like uh the film came out yeah wasn't accepted underwhelmed at the box office and that's that <laughs> it's, it's really a, it's, it's a melancholy note yeah i mean this is the part of the documentary where they should be talking about it as a rousing success yeah but i also think that when it comes to these documentaries, and would it be in a Charles de Lazarica documentary yeah. again, which is always fantastic and of a high quality, I'm always amazed that Fox let them say yeah. the things that they are able to say, because <laughs> I said that about the uh, Alien 3 documentary as yeah. well. It's very revealing. They don't really mention anyone by name, and I think that's why they get away with it. Mm. Cough Tom Rothman. It's another one of those great documentaries for just giving you a glimpse of what working with Hollywood is like. Uh, yeah, he talks about, obviously... You have to be respectful because you're you're basically dealing with their money. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not the filmmakers and they're not the smart entertainers. Yeah. And they don't have a real handle on what audiences are going to engage with because at the end of the day, they're accountants. And even just that idea of just making the film shorter, they just shot themselves in the foot because I'm pretty sure that 
if the film had gone out in its director's cut version, it might not have been a massive success. It's one of those things where some people may just not want to go and see the film for what it actually has to say. But I think it would have been much better reviewed as it has gone on to be. And I think more people would have been attracted to it. Well, considering that the film is in fact made by an atheist and written by one, I assume, from Mm. William Monaghan, I think that this film was always destined to rile some people up because, Mm. one, it presents both sides of the argument in a very balanced way, but it also has a lot of damaging things to say about organized religion, but a lot of positive things to say about spirituality and about inner spirituality, about achieving the God inside you, almost like that's where God resides. And so I think it's always destined to rile people up because of that. Mm. But at the same time, I think it's a strong message that needs to be out there. And it's a shame that that message was completely undercut by the theatrical cut. Yeah. So our fight with Kingdom of Heaven may have ended with Ridley Scott's film standing proudly triumphant. But what did audiences and the critics make of this religious epic? It's time for the stats and facts. First up, we have the critics. So, the Rotten Tomatoes score for this film is a shockingly low, but also understandably low, yeah. 39%. Yeah. Now, I Oof. think it's actually risen over the years as reviews of the director's cut have trickled through, but it's clear that the film still has not recovered from that theatrical cut. Yeah. It has an average rating of 5.5 out of 10, and the critics' consensus is... Although it's an objective and handsomely presented take on the Crusades, Kingdom of Heaven lacks depth. And I think that's right. Yeah, but it's the also, of the theatrical version. The Hollywood version. But completely wrong of the director's cut. Yeah. And I think this is where you are completely right about Ridley Scott damaging his legacy and the films that he makes, completely regardless of whether or not he achieves a director's cut later on online. Because if you are a person that thinks, I might want to see that Kingdom of Heaven film, they search it in Google, the first thing they're going to see is the Rotten Tomatoes score of 39%. That's not really going to embolden you to watch it. It damages your reputation for the general audience. Obviously, for mm-hmm. the fans and the people who want to go and find things, that's fine. But for the actual general audience, it just looks like he's made a dodgy film. Yeah. Although I will say that the audience score for this film is much higher, but I would still say below where it should be residing. It has a 72% score. Mm. Uh, That's the people that liked it, and they rated it 3.4 out of 5, which, again, both of those numbers are far too low. I mean, this is a 95% plus film, really. Well, at the end of the day, as well, if you are a general audience and you don't realise there is the director's cut and you, say, picked up the DVD, I say, for example, my dad... He has the DVD of Kingdom of Heaven. He enjoys it in of itself because mm-hmm. I was saying that we were actually going to do it for the podcast this week. And it was like, oh, yeah, Kingdom of Heaven. So is that the only version you've seen? It was like, yeah. It's like, you've not seen Kingdom of Heaven. Then. Yeah. Like, I have to lend you this proper version of the film. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you can see how great it is. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also probably why the audience score is on that side because I think people are still maybe picking up the DVD version and, and whatever because they don't know that the director's cut is the proper version and Mm -hmm. the definitive version of the film it's almost quite funny as well now that apart from like the ultimate edition that's come out the other blu-ray editions of the film treat the director's cut as the film yes left that it's the main version behind it doesn't exist anymore yeah so if you buy it in that format that's the only version that you really get and even on the ultimate edition it lists the theatrical version as last like yes. almost like it's a bonus feature. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's what it felt like to me watching it. It felt like I was watching a bonus feature. Yeah. <laughs> a TV edit of the yeah. film or something. Yeah. To move on to the reviews, I do have a very, very favourable review of the theatrical version from Roger Ebert. And he says, 
The first thing to be said for Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven is that Scott knows how to direct a historical epic. I might have been kinder to his Gladiator had I known that Troy and Alexander were in my future, but Kingdom of Heaven is better than Gladiator, deeper, more thoughtful, more about human motivation, and less about action. Now, to me, it seems like he's actually describing the director's, the, the director's cut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if that is what he thought of the theatrical cut, he must have just completely creamed his pants <laughs> when he saw <laughs> the director's cut. Now, Roger Ebert thought it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> to go further, I do think he actually raises some good points about this film and about the response it received from some Christian critics and some Muslim critics. This isn't really anything critical about the film, but I thought it's something that I wanted to express. And Ebert says, The second thing is that Scott is a brave man to release a movie at this time about the wars between Christians and Muslims for control of Jerusalem. Few people will be capable of looking at Kingdom of Heaven objectively. I have been invited by both Muslims and Christians to view the movie with them so they can point out its shortcomings. When you've made both sides angry, you may have done something right. Yeah. And I think that hits the nail on the head mm. completely. I guess because you have a film that's almost like in an umbrella way, critical yeah. of organized religion. Yeah, it's, it's a very inclusive film. Yeah. It doesn't favor one side over the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I did read that when Saladin finally took over Jerusalem after the siege, mm. and there's that fantastic shot i think it's a perfectly executed shot of him walking through the church and picking up the cross from the floor and placing it on the side and what he thinks is its rightful place it actually got a round of applause from its muslim audience in some festival circuits i think it was because of the way in which this grand muslim figure treats this other religion like mm. uh, everybody expecting it to be like he was sacking christianity but really he gives it its place right next to him in jerusalem and i was yeah, like it's yeah. a really strong moment i think that's where if you are strongly on one side you would maybe miss the point of the film yeah what it's actually trying to say because at the end of the day it's saying that yeah he is putting it everything side by side is being a little bit hypocritical because basically you're just changing the drapes yes when it's basically one and the same thing anyway yeah and it's just different viewpoints of that so well it just hammers home that point that all jerusalem really means is power yeah it has nothing spiritual about it and there's no reason that two different ideologies can't live side by side in this place it's like harry potter when you have the flags going gryffindor (laughs) hufflepuff Slytherin down now the green. How perfectly reductive. Yeah, I, it's I love like it. that. It's, it's, but it is serious. It's like yeah, that. it is. That's the yeah. way that they, that's the way it treats when they actually enter the city and go into it the, is yeah. into the church slash temple. It's that same thing. It's like, <laughs> yep, yeah, uh, I don't like this color. Uh, can you imagine it if that's how religion was decided? Like you yeah. sat there going, God, I hope the sultan hat makes me a Muslim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Please come on, Jew. <laughs> oh dear. But I think that's. Yeah, that is what the film is saying. They say that, like, these divisions are merely just window dressing. Yeah. At the end of the day, and we are all one and the same. Mm-hmm. Really, at the end of the day, a lot of the things are about power. Yeah. That's what it's commenting on. To move on to Empire, they were not as favorable as Roger Ebert mm-hmm. and much more in line with our way of thinking when yeah. criticizing the theatrical cut of the film. William Thomas awarded the film three out of five, and he said, What's missing from this epic, so professionally clad as it is, is meaning. 
Scott mm. shows things but fails to interpret why they are happening. Motivations, historical context, any resonance with the modern world's tribulations are avoided in a strangely bare-boned edit that feels far too short. Two <laughs> hours plus is plenty for many genres, but the historical epic needs to be unbound to fill lonely Sunday afternoons with its plethora of characters and moral debates. Kingdom of Heaven is in such a big hurry, within half an hour we've had murdered priests, burning villages, skirmishes, fever, death, a shipwreck, and one of those notable scenes where an enemy prince is spared to return the favour at a later date. Yeah, it's like he almost knows that that's not the right edit. Yeah. It's crazy when you watch the theatrical version after having seen the director's cut, how rushed it is. Yeah. How it just literally just feels like a fast forward version of the film. Well, you know what? This, like how he says about how the theatrical version does not parallel the modern world in any way. I do get that because the reason that the Muslims are actually sieging Jerusalem, their motivation for doing so is said earlier is for a crime that was committed against Muslim people. Uh, I think it was a hundred years, years before. Prior, yeah. Yeah, so that relates to none of the people there. Much like people are going to war today over their different ideologies, over tragedies that have befell nobody that they know yeah. or connect to them. That applies very much to today's world. Mm. So it's, again, it's a shame. It's just another thing that's been lost in the edit mm. that was thankfully rectified for the director's cut. Because that's another thing as well that the film is about. It's about forgiveness. Even if you think you've been wronged, the best thing to do is to forgive that person and move on. Yeah. Because if you don't, then the same things keep happening time and time mm-hmm. again. And it won't stop if someone doesn't say, let's stop. Well, it recalls that Shakespeare quote, which is, um, to err is human, to forgive yeah. is divine. Yeah. It's perfectly. And my final thing about the reviews is that according to Wikipedia, nearly all reviews of the 2006 director's cut have been positive, including a four-star review in British magazines Total Film and Empire, and a perfect 10 out of 10 from IGN. Now, I still think 4 out of 5 is yeah, it's still no, low. This is a masterpiece in its final form. It is. A true masterpiece. Yeah. And the IMDb score is 7.2, which is still too damn yeah, low. Yeah. Just to go on the IMDb score as well, just a little bit further, is that it's only half a point, so 0.5 of a point above Robin Hood. Hmm. Ridley Scott's other failed epic, yeah, which um, is a very muddy, slow, yeah. mediocre film, yeah. in my opinion. It's a very dull film, that one. Yeah, which, uh, again, it's, it's a travesty that this film is only regarded as being that much better. Mm. So, let us move on to the box office, and that should give us a greater idea of just how this film landed with audiences at yeah. the time. Did they flock to it in droves? Well, it's over to you, Andy, to tell us. No! <laughs> <laughs> they flocked to it in drove. Yeah. This is a film that was made for 130 million. So theatrically, probably made for about 60 because yeah. all that money's been wasted on mm-hmm. all on the floor. But yeah, 130 million budget. Domestic, which I find ironic for this kind of film because there's nothing American about it. Domestic's just over 47 million. Yeah. And foreign, unsurprisingly, is uh, 164 million. So yeah, that's over. 75% of the whole takings of the film, which is quite significant. And not surprising, yeah. given the film's subject matter. And I would imagine that this would be a film that would anger a large proportion of the American audience. Yeah, especially the religious fanatics over there, the yeah. Christian fanatics, because it... Especially, again, in, yeah, cause especially in how it portrays the Christian fanatics in yeah. the film. <laughs> but it's because they want to see 
Christian's victorious, whereas this, like you say, it presents it as being a lot more balanced, and this, the main Christian character in it as well is horribly corrupt. Yeah. So yeah, in all, it makes around about two hundred eleven point five million dollars worldwide on its total run, mm-hmm. which was quite long as well. It was open for about seventeen weeks. Oh as right. Well, so that was its full run. It opened, I think, May fifth. Uh, or May the 4th in 2005, and finally closed on September the 1st. Oh, wow. So it had a very long run. I imagine Fox were trying to just rake Squeeze in as much every money as possible to make up. Maybe just to push it over that 50 million. Yeah. Because, as we know, every milestone that they meet, actually, in terms of the money made domestically and abroad, means that they can sell it for more when it comes to home video, when it comes to TV, when mm. it comes to streaming rights, although that didn't apply back then. But when it comes to like uh, selling off the TV rights, that's why you get so many of these films just hold in there when they're at like $99 million in terms of domestic gross. Mm. Or they might even do a re-release and pump a little bit more money into it yeah, just to yeah. get that extra mil. And it's a funny old week that it opened on as well. <laughs> There's probably only a couple of films of note on this list. Uh, well, had zero competition when it opened. Um, what are some of the films that it opened up against? Right, so it did actually open to number one. Woo. With uh, 19 and a half million. Ooh. It's not bad. It's not great either. But, so, um, I mean, it didn't really make more than two times its opening weekend, yeah, which I'm, is considered I'm, a I'm, massive yeah. drop-off. Yeah. So, yeah, opened at number one. At number two, you got House of Wax, the remake. I went to the cinema to see that. Yeah. And that was also in its first week. Yeah. And that made 12. It was gloriously dreadful. Uh, you've got Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at number three in its second week. Oh, okay. So that's one of the films of note. Yes. Uh, you've got Paul Haggis's Crash. Yeah, not David Cronenberg's Crash. Oh. Uh, that's in its first week as well at number four. Mm-hmm. You've got The Interpreter in its third week at number five. Is that the Nicole Kidman, Sean Penn film? Uh, yeah. Or Naomi Watts. I can't yeah, remember. Naomi Watts. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Or is it? I can't, I think. <laughs> no, isn't it? Yeah. Is it not Nicole Kidman? It's Nicole Kidman, yeah. Oh, um, I yeah. don't know. White people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you've got, on its second week at number six, Triple X Two, State, State of, of Union. Union. Yeah, yeah. A film that only just getting round to writing the ship. Yeah, well, I say writing the ship because it's not a classic franchise anyway. <laughs> with Triple X Three, the return of Xander Cage. Aren't you excited, Andy? Aren't you excited for the return of Xander Cage? Also, interestingly, the film that Lee Tamahari made after Die Another Day. Shocking. And following his cross-dressing uh, antics as well. Is so. X not going to give it to you? Gonna give it to you. X gonna give it to you. No. And then we got number seven and it's fifth week we got Sahara. Oh yeah. that was another uh, notable bomb that will yep. probably be covered at some point on this yeah, podcast. Yeah. And uh yeah, we've got a uh, yet another remake. This is I think when they're all starting to come in now, yeah. Number eight, we've got the Amityville Horror. I also went to cinema to see that, the Ryan Reynolds version yep. and Melissa. No, it wasn't Melissa George, was it? It was um, Melissa Person. The other one. The other blonde white person. <laughs> um, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, it's the Ryan Reynolds version. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a film at number nine called A Lot Like Love, which I've never heard of. It smells a lot like shit. Yep. <laughs> and then, uh, yet another remake. Yep. We have uh, Fever Pitch, a.k.a. A Perfect Catch with Jimmy Fallon. And Drew Barrymore. Yeah. yeah. A perfect that, catch, yeah, that's what it was called yeah. over here, wasn't it? Yeah, because we had a much better earlier yeah. version. Of course with, we did. With Colin Firth in it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's your whole week for your top ten. It should have been doing a so, lot more yeah, that week. It should have been a doing, lot yeah. more. It's literally only like 
genuinely compelling film on there as well like mm-hmm. you've got a couple of other ones there but it's a it's definitely a dry week considering the uh the masterpiece that the director's cut is this should have been a home run yeah. for it and i think it might have been had they marketed the right film i don't think it was ever destined to really land as well as it did internationally with american audiences no. though considering its subject matter but i think it would have had a lot more staying power had they released the director's cut because mm. the critics would have well, been on their I, side. I, I think it's a combination of the two things releasing the director's cut as it was and then also marketing it completely differently because even if you had released the director's cut with that marketing it would have still left people disappointed yeah because it's not gladiator and i think they would have needed to steer away from that i think really what they need to do would be to emphasize the epic scope yes. of the film rather than the battle scenes because the battle I- scenes are part of it but they're only amount to about 25 percent of the film and although I know this isn't going to sell many seats, but they also need to market the political complexity of the film as well. Mm. At least give a hint of it that there's more going on underneath the surface yeah. here than just swords clashing. Mm. Okay, so that leads us to the final two questions that I ask at the end of every episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Yep. The first of which is, are we any closer to understanding why Kingdom of Heaven has been forgotten? Yes. And in my notes, I've wrote, yes, it's because Tom Rothman's a proper cunt. <laughs> <laughs> even if you just watch the first 10 minutes of the theatrical cut you can totally see what's gone wrong here yeah it just makes the fact that the director's cut wasn't released in theaters all the more of a sore point really it is a great film when free of its studio interference and i would say in that form it is one of the great epics mm-hmm. it's right up there with the david leans and you you Kubrick. i think it stands side by side along the likes of lawrence of arabia yeah i think it's earned that place in and amongst those films and i'd say it's definitely the best epic of the 21st century yeah and i would say it's one of my most favorite films yeah. of yeah the last 16 years of the 21st century yeah and definitely one of the most uh vital films of ridley scott's career mm-hmm. in what it achieves and what it has to say yeah yeah i think everyone should be very proud of it and it's a real shame that it just got gutted and neutered yeah in its final stages it's like almost every time that anybody's going to speak of it it's always going to be with that asterisk yeah and that reference to the theatrical cut mm. which is such a shame so finally Is Kingdom of Heaven one of the best of the forgotten movies or should it remain best forgotten? (laughs) I think it's undoubtedly the most best of the forgotten films. Yeah, I was going to say it is. um, And probably will cover for a very, very long time. Yeah. There are a few films out there of this quality that are so underappreciated as this. Yeah. And again, it has garnered a reputation for being one of the most radical director's cuts of all time, if not being the most radically different because it is radical. I can't think of another one as radical as this one. And I would say for anybody who hasn't seen the film or has only seen the theatrical version, get the director's cut and go see it. Yes. Seriously, because it's uh, a really, really, really good film. And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes, and we may get back in touch with you. We may. We may, if we feel like it. Also, if you have the time to help us continue grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. We really need help in terms of growing our fan base and growing our presence on Mm, iTunes. And in order to achieve that, we do need more ratings, more reviews from our listeners on iTunes. So if you could help with that, it would be amazing for us as a podcast. Yeah. 
and it will help us grow. But not in that way. <laughs> I'm at full growth anyway. You're at full mass. Yeah, I was <laughs> just talking about this film. Yeah, exactly. I was, yeah, uh, yeah the entire way. Yeah, I've yeah. got no blood up here. Oh, right. Above the shoulders, there's nothing going on. It'll just go. <laughs> <laughs> Sly away. It's happened before. Join us next week when we're done professionally with this fucking amateur Terminator Salvation. A film that will leave you done, 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 done with this series. <laughs> but until then, it's bye for myself and cheerio from Andy. Sorry, my, my part's been cut. We'll just have to rush forward to the end. Yeah, we'll Sorry. save that for the director's yeah, cut, mate. It wasn't deemed important enough. Thanks for listening.